and turn our Bibles to the book of Revelation. Revelation 11, verses 15 through 19 this morning. title of our message today is Christ will reign forever, which is, of course, what we see happening in our uh, passage. We are looking forward to the time like we learned about in or we read about in the scripture reading this morning, that kingdom made without human hands that will one day come to this earth and Jesus Christ will rule and reign over a kingdom of his own making, not one of our own making. This, in fact, is the entire point of the book of Revelation and the theme of the entire book is that uh, one day... Jesus Christ is going to come again and he's going to rule and reign over this earth. And we are getting a a glimpse of that this morning, beginning in verse 15 of chapter 11. I'll just go ahead and read that since we didn't already uh, read it this morning. It says, Revelation 11, 15, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets, and the saints and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. So, of course, as we always do, at least always try to do, uh, we need to remember the context of, of what is being spoken of here. Of course, you could approach this passage, just take it out of the Bible and, and uh, apply whatever meaning you want to it. But that, of course, isn't faithful to the way that it was written and how we should understand the Bible. So uh, that's why we go through this drill of reminding ourselves of where we are and what we've covered and in the position that this that our passage has for it each week because that's very very important to remember so the book of revelation of course we've seen many times can broken into three parts very easily from revelation 119 the things which you have seen as a vision of christ uh as he is the one who is being revealed here he's the authority Behind the text, uh, John is to write about the things which are. That was chapters 2 and 3 and the messages to the churches. And then he's to write about the things which will take place after these things. And that primarily is describing the seven-year tribulation period that leads up to the coming of Christ and establishment of his kingdom. And that, that is where we find ourselves in our study of... Revelation uh, in this future things section, if you will, describing the seven-year period that leads up to his second coming and establishment of the kingdom. So, of course, here's our chronology. We are living in the church age. Uh, We believe the Bible teaches pretty clearly that Jesus Christ will come in the clouds for his church and that will bring the church age to an end and he will be taken back to heaven and we call that the rapture and then at some time subsequent to that this tribulation period revelation 6 through 19 will take place that we are studying at the end of that period christ will physically come again to the earth and establish his kingdom like we read about in Daniel, and we will see uh, a picture of this morning in our passage. 
So we've covered a lot of ground in this seven-year period. I would estimate uh, that we've covered about three and a half years of that seven-year period of time, chronologically speaking, the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments coming in the first half of the tribulation, beginning with, uh, we have seen many times the seal judgments begin the tribulation. We know we're not in it now uh, because Putin invading Russia is not a sign of the tribulation or that it's beginning or anything like that because the tribulation begins with peace. There's going to come a person who is going to bring peace to this world. And we know that that's uh, something that the world is very much seeking after. Every time there's some kind of conflict, the idea comes up, oh, we need a man of peace. Well, <laughs> one day he's, he's going to come and he's going to bring a false peace. And that's what's going to begin the tribulation period. And then shortly after that, there will be war, there will be famine, there will be death on an unprecedented scale, there will be martyrs. And there's going to be signs in the heavens and the earth, the darkening of the sun, the, the moon losing its light, stars falling from the sky, these kinds of things. And then we saw that there was an interlude after six, a description of six of the judgments, whether it's seals, trumpets, or bulls. There's a break in the action where John uh, writes about events that gives more information about things that have happened and things that will happen. And we saw the 144,000 were described in this break, not uh, the Seventh-day Adventists or Mormons are not the 144,000. Jehovah's Witnesses, they're not the 144,000. There are 144,000 Jewish witnesses who will do the work of the Lord during this tribulation period. Uh, we saw the results of their work also in chapter 7. And then we had the seventh seal, which unleashed the seven trumpet judgments, which seemed to the intensity of the judgments increase as we move into the seals, where with the with the or into the trumpets. With the first trumpet, a third of all of the trees are destroyed. A third of the earth is burned up. I mean, we they talk about the wildfires out in California. A hundred thousand acres burned in California in some wildfire, which is pretty dramatic and traumatic for the people involved. But imagine a third of the earth engulfed in a wildfire. Wow, that's, that's pretty uh, a large portion of the earth's surface. That's what will happen in the first trumpet judgment. And then a, something like maybe either a volcano or a meteor will come, destroy a third of the ships. And then there will be a, a star fall into the earth and destroy or turn a third of the earth's fresh water to blood. And then there will be more signs in the sky. And then this demonic, these demonic locusts released in the fifth trumpet judgment and then a demonic army that comes into the earth and kills a third of the remaining population and now we find ourselves in the in another interlude chapter 10 was john's recommissioning and then in chapter 11 we've been discussing these two witnesses who will come to a literal temple in the literal city of jerusalem that means there's the temple is going to need to be rebuilt they're already planning on doing this. All it takes is the, the word go, go ahead and do it, and that temple will be built in Jerusalem very quickly. And uh, so that will happen. And then these two witnesses will come and witness for the Lord and perform incredible miracles. Uh, we don't know exactly who they are. Their ministry is very similar to that of Moses and that of Elijah. My take is they'll probably be similar to uh, those two, not necessarily literally Moses and Elijah. Uh, and there's going to be this, in this time, there's this dividing line, this measuring of the temple. Who is faithful and who is, who is not faithful is determined at this time. 
And then I was given this picture. I'm not sure if you can see that. This is a mass. Everything you see here is a person, <laughs> essentially standing, just a, a mass of humanity. There is the picture in the, the, the uh, tagline or description underneath says, Banner Day. Tens of thousands of people attended the Pride Parade in Tel Aviv, Israel on Friday, celebrating the LGBTQ community in the largest annual gathering of its kind in the Mideast. So like it says in verse 8, Revelation 11:8, where it talks about the witnesses having, they were killed, if you'll remember, and then they were raised to life. Well, while they were dead, verse 8, their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. That's a perfect example of symbolic language. So why, why would they call it that? Why would it be called Sodom? Well, here Tel Aviv is just a stone's throw uh, north of Jerusalem. This is Israel today, the largest pride gathering uh, in the Middle East taking place there. That's why it's referred to as Sodom in Egypt in the Bible during this time, because the nation of Israel is regathered in unbelief. They are unbelieving. One day they will believe. And when they do, Jesus Christ will come again and reign forever. And that's the topic of our message today. We will have a heavenly announcement, a hymn of thanksgiving, and a hailstorm as we look at this seventh trumpet and Jesus Christ ruling and reigning. Revelation eleven fifteen again, then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. The seventh angel sounds and there's, there is no immediate consequence uh, on the earth that that takes place that we that we are seeing uh, this is reminiscent of revelation 10 7 where it, again it is it speaks of something that will take place in the future but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel when he is about to sound the mystery of god is finished as he preached to his servants and prophets well what we are seeing here is what was preached about by the prophets and the servants of the Lord, that in a future day, there is going to, this is going to take place. The Lord is going to rule and to reign. And we have these loud heavenly voices. You know, theologians like to get into every detail and for some reason speculate about what the meaning is. So who are the loud voices? I really, I don't, I don't know who the loud voices are. It doesn't tell us who the loud voices are. Sort of like, who are the two witnesses? Oh, it has to be Moses and Elijah. Well, does it? Where does it say that in the text? I mean, if, if it says it's Moses and Elijah, then okay. But it doesn't, it doesn't say that they are. So let's not uh, beat one another up over those those kinds of things. We don't know who the loud heavenly voices are, probably angels. Maybe it's us. Maybe it's uh, believers. There's going to be an awful lot of us in heaven at this time. And when this seventh trumpet is blown and one day in the future, we will be there. And I guarantee we're going to be celebrating like our uh, favorite team just uh, scored the winning touchdown or whatever sport you happen to be into or whatever, whatever you want to celebrate, uh, we will be celebrating at that time as we're looking forward to Christ ruling and reigning forever. But notice that first in this announcement, the first thing that's mentioned by these loud voices is that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of our Christ. Now it's interesting that the kingdom of the world, that is never ever spiritualized. I don't think by anybody, really. What, you know, what is the kingdom of the world? Well, we're living in it. We're living in the world. Nobody, nobody comes, approaches the kingdom of the world and says, oh, that's, you know, 
whatever, some world from Star Wars or something, something like that. Everybody knows what the kingdom of the world is. It's the earth that we're, that we're living on. That's very, very clear. And from our scripture reading this morning, Daniel chapter 2, we know that the, the Bible makes very clear that, it's going, that the kingdom of this world is going to be ruled over by a series of, of kings and kingdoms. And that's very, we can look back at history and see that, yes, that interpretation that God gave to Daniel of that dream is is very accurate, point by point of who these kingdoms are. And some of these things that are described by Daniel haven't taken place, but boy, Babylon existed, and then Media Persia existed, and then Greece existed, and then Rome existed, one following after the next, being described very in pretty good detail about their various attributes. Those things all took place. We should have pretty good confidence that the rest of this that is described that hasn't taken place will, in fact, take place. But what is this kingdom of the world that is being described here? Well, we read that in our scripture reading this morning, so I won't take the time to uh, read that again there in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 7 also describes, gives a, a description of these, uh, this same kingdom. They're described as four beasts there, if, if memory serves. Daniel chapter 7, uh, beginning in verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. And he sees these four uh, beasts in this vision. Psalm chapter 2 describes these, uh, this kingdom of the world also. Psalm 2 and verse 1, Why are the nations in an uproar? And the peoples devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. This is just the spirit, the very spirit of the world is to come together, like is described there in Psalm chapter 2, the kings of the world coming together, conspiring with one another against God. That's the way it's been from the very beginning. That's what God warned us about, warned the world about before the Tower of Babel. He wanted people to uh, separate, fill the world. Don't congregate in one place and have your evil minds come together and devise evil, devise things against God and conspire against him and try to overthrow him. But man is very, he's very uh, conniving. He's very devious. And even though, yes, the Tower of Babel came and uh, we, the mankind was spread out around the world into various language and people groups. And over thousands of years, we've had uh, races develop and more languages and nations and all this place where we find ourselves in this world today. Uh, Satan is also very devious. He's very patient. He's uh, taken nigh on 6,000 years here to develop a way that people, okay, we can spread out around the world, but we can still come together and we can still share our ideas just exactly the same way that we did in the Tower of Babylon. And it's called the Internet. And unfortunately, it also, uh, a part of the Internet, social media is, is uh, very deceptive and destructive, particularly to young people. So why are we seeing this incredible proliferation of of, uh, abnormality in the world today in terms of 
of the young people and their view on uh, sexuality and these kinds of things, well, they can go on the, you can go on the internet and you can find a million people who agree with you on whatever ridiculous idea you have, and you can create your own community there and encourage one another in sin against God. Something very important for the young people to watch out for, to not be influenced by that, and of course parents to try to help and guide them along in this ridiculous world in which we are living that uh, wants to do everything it can to rebel against the God of the universe. So the kings of the world are going to do the same thing in the future. They're already doing it. And we, in our sinful state, before believing in God, we were a part of that system. And hopefully as believers, we recognize that now and try to withdraw ourselves from that position. But that's, that was the desperate state we found ourselves in. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. In verse 4, but God saved us out of that by coming into this world and dying for the sins of the world, making salvation available to all of us simply by believing in what he has done. But that's, that's the kingdom of the world in a nutshell. It's not a, very, it's not a very nice place. It's a literal thing, obviously, that is in existence today. But notice in our, in our verse, verse 15, that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Now, is this, is this saying that the kingdom is now? It, it has become? Or, that even, or is it saying when the seventh trumpet is blown, that's it? This is the end? That the, the kingdom has become, like it says in our English Bibles? Jesus is ruling and reigning in our chronology here in Revelation chapter 11. Well, if it was, if that's what it was saying, well, why do we have chapter 12, 13, 14, 15? What about the bulls? Uh, we haven't got to the bulls yet. That's my favorite part. We want to, it's not describing that. That's why it, chronologically we are not to Christ ruling and reigning, even though that's kind of what it reads like in our English Bibles. We get to Revelation 11, uh, 15 and we can just okay that's that's it we're done with revelation because he's ruling and reigning and he will forever and ever well we have to put on our english or our not english our greek <laughs> grammar hat thinking caps and kind of think about this a little bit and it has to do with with all grammar really and the problem is this errorist tense. Now, I, everybody who's been to uh, junior high or high school knows about the tenses in English anyway, past, present, future. In Greek, obviously, people can uh, describe things in any language. You can describe things as already happening, happening now, or will happen in the future. But there, there's a lot more subtlety to it than just those three kind of uh, basic tenses. And people get into trouble with this errorist tense in Greek. We Obviously, there's no errorist tense in English. Uh, and so we just want to kind of assign it something that English has so we can better understand it. So we describe it as the past tense, uh, eris, talking about a, a completed action. And that, that really isn't an accurate way of describing what the eris tense is. And there's a lot of debate on this uh, among uh, Greek scholars and these kinds of things. So we won't uh, I certainly am not, not qualified to talk about it in, in great detail as, as they can, obviously. 
But nevertheless, the aorist tense, yes, it can, like everything, it can, you have to rely, like everything in grammar, you have to rely on the context to understand what is being said. Uh, and it can mean a completed action. It, it most times is translated as a past tense in our English Bibles. But it's really more describing the aspect or what kind of of action is taking place there, not necessarily assigning a time frame to it, like past tense or has become. That's a kind of a, a limited, a limitation of the English language. Uh, so this verse I have written here, this verse does not prove recapitulation. The idea of recapitulation again is that the uh, sealed judgments describe the whole seven-year tribulation period, and then we start the trumpet judgments, and they describe the whole seven-year tribulation period as proven here because in their theory, the seventh trumpet, Christ is reigning, so that has to be the end. And then the bowl judgments also describe the whole uh, seven-year tribulation period. That, that interpretation is largely based on seeing this aorist tense as describing as being a past tense. He, he's already ruling and reigning when we see this, so that, that has to be the end. The problem is that that's not necessarily an accurate translation of the aorist tense, and we'll get more into that here uh, in our next section also but we see these the the judgments as being telescoping as in this the seals describe a a portion of the tribulation period the trumpets describe a portion of the tribulation period the bowls describe a portion of the tribulation period the whole seven years being covered when we add those sections together, we come up with seven years of the tribulation. Uh, for example, if the, uh, the idea of recapitulation, I mean, there would be some similarity between the judgments if that is in fact what was being described. So the first seal is peace. The first trumpet is a massive uh, wildfire that destroys essentially a third of the earth. Well, that's not peace. And I can go through and uh, do that for all of them. We won't take the time to do that. There's not a lot of uh, overlapping there between, between the judgments. So it, it kind of becomes difficult to hold to that viewpoint. We'll get more into this uh, aorist, whether you like it or not. We'll get more into that here in a couple of uh, verses. But notice, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. So since we didn't spiritualize the kingdom of the world, we most certainly should not spiritualize the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and how the Bible describes it. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, four definite empires that ruled over the known world, essentially, uh, physical things. And then a stone comes and, and a kingdom takes over the whole world. It's got to be the only possible way that we could do any justice to the text is to see that as a literal kingdom that will one day come to this earth and it will be ruled over by Jesus Christ our Lord and his Christ Christos the Greek term for Christ uh, the Greek the Hebrew equivalent is Messiah or Mashiach in in the uh, in the Hebrew you know, there's nothing special about calling uh, Jesus Yeshua or Mashiach that doesn't do some super special thing to call him that if we use English to call him Jesus, he knows <laughs> that we're referring to him. Christ is not his last name. It is a title that means anointed one or chosen one by 
God. That's what the term Christ means. Whether you say Christ or Christos or Messiah or Mashiach, they, they all four of those terms mean the same thing. He is the one who will come and rule and reign over this kingdom of God's making. We saw that in Daniel 2, verse 44, verses 44 and 45, that he will come and crush these kingdoms of the world and establish his kingdom on this earth. Daniel 7, after seeing the, the four beasts, uh, Daniel 7, in verse, beginning in verse 9, describes these same events. Daniel 7, 9, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn, the Antichrist, was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. Oh, about seven years that period of time is. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed." Psalm chapter 2, verses 4 through 12 also describe this coming kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ, and, his king, and he will reign forever, forever and ever, it even says there in uh, Revelation eleven fifteen. So, well, I thought the kingdom was only a thousand years. I mean, we stress this point of the kingdom is a thousand years. It's a thousand years. It says it six times in Revelation 20 and all of these kinds of things. And yes, that is true. On this physical earth, the Lord's reign will last for 1,000 years, and then we will go into eternity. It has been said that, that the kingdom on earth is like Solomon's porch on the temple. It's just kind of the, the opening section of the temple. It's the opening section of the kingdom. And then we will live forever and ever with the Lord. That's what's described in Revelation 21 and 22. Uh, Revelation 7, or Daniel 7, 14 it, the forever and ever is the thousand years plus eternity. That's what's uh, being described here. And that's the heavenly announcement that comes from the, from the loud voices. And then we have a hymn of thanksgiving beginning in verse 16 of Revelation 11. It says in the 24 elders, who sit on their thrones before God, fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. Here, here we have the 24 elders again. We've talked about them in the past. Uh, we came to the conclusion that they are essentially representative of the church. They're dressed in white garments. Uh, they, they are uh, in heaven before the tribulation period begins. We don't see them uh, really in heaven before then, uh, it's kind of, uh, we're first introduced to them in Revelation 4, 4. We, you can go back and, and uh, 
see those messages if you want to see more about the 24 elders. But notice that the, what the very first thing that they do there in verse 17 is, and we've, they fall on their faces in worship. We've spent a lot of time talking about that in earlier messages in Revelation also. Recognizing who God, God for who he is, that's essentially what worship is. Uh, verse 17, the very first thing that they say in their hymn of thanksgiving is, we give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty. Giving thanks is such a critical thing for us to do as people. Uh, we, <laughs> we just got a new puppy and is a great sermon illustration. He's always trying to get something else from what, from what he has. Uh, this, he is the most spoiled creature on the planet at this point in time. He has everything he could ever want or desire, but yet he's always trying to get something else. He's not a very thankful creature. Uh, and that's kind of like us. That's kind of like people. We certainly can be, but we shouldn't be. We should be grateful for such things as we have. Uh, and these elders are a wonderful example for us. We give you thanks, first thing, to the Lord God, the Almighty. Uh, Romans 1, chapter 1, if you haven't read that in a while, you ought to. That's a, that's a good one for such as times as we are living in, describing kind of the, the fall of, of man and the desperate sin and debauchery that we can fall into as fallen humans. And the very first thing that is mentioned as far as, as the trail that leads to completely denying God and the created order of things is not being thankful. Romans 1.21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. That, that's, that's America. That's the world in a nutshell. And what happened to them? Because they didn't honor God and they didn't give thanks, they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. I mean, spend five seconds on TikTok and you see their foolish hearts being darkened. And that's what I'm talking about with, with young people coming together on a, on a social platform like that and their foolish heart being darkened by millions of other foolish hearts coming together and uh, their futile speculations about God and the world in general, being encouraged in that. Very dangerous, very dangerous uh, place to be. And the results of not giving thanks leads to Romans 1, 22, through 32, which we won't take the time to read, but I would encourage you to read it if you haven't in a while. Instead, we ought to do like Paul instructed the Thessalonians to do in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always, pray without ceasing in everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. What is God's will for me? Where does he want me to work? Who does he want me to marry? What does he want me to do? Well, start by getting in tune with these kinds of things where it expressly says what God's will is for you. Uh, we read about one of them last week in 1 Thessalonians 4, avoiding sexual immorality. That's God's will for you. Another thing that is God's will for you is for you to give thanks in Everything, even when there's uh, food shortages, baby formula shortages, price of gas. I paid six twenty. I bet I don't know if anybody could top that one. Paid six twenty the other day, and uh, oh, it was in Michigan actually. At any rate, be thankful in everything. Give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I'm not sure we have to be thankful for high gas prices, but we ought to maintain a, a good and godly attitude as we go about our daily business. Uh, so give thanks like these 
uh, elders did. You can be, when bad things happen, you can be reminded about all the other good things that God has provided for you and give thanks for those. It will do a lot for your, for your psyche and your spiritual well-being. But they give thanks to the Lord God, the Almighty, uh, for one, because He is and He was. He has always existed, is what is being described there. And because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. Here we go again with the aorist tense. Again, now the elders, the loud voices were recognizing that Christ is going to reign. And now the elders are doing the same. You have begun to reign. Again, an aorist tense, it's describing the, the aspect, not necessarily the timing of it as if it's past tense. Uh, sometimes you will hear this referred to as a proleptic. Uh, sometimes there's a proleptic present. It's a present tense that's describing a future action. This is an aorist tense that's describing a future action. Uh, and the aspect of the verb kind of describes thing, the, the type of action that it is. Is it an ongoing action? Is it a complete action? How does it relate to other verbs in the sentence? For example, uh, you could have the sentence, Mary is cooking dinner. She chopped the tomatoes and was heating the frying pan. And you have three different verbs that are describing Mary uh, cooking dinner. Now, did she, was this yesterday that she is cooking dinner? Or is she doing it now? Or is she going to do that tomorrow? You, you kind of have to determine that based on the context, even though there's uh, verbs that are being described, actions that are being described using these verbs in various tenses. Well, that's as a non-grammar person, that's my best uh, way to describe that to you. This is not saying that chronologically in Revelation chapter 11 that Christ is ruling and reigning. It is saying it can be said with such certainty that one day Christ will rule and reign. We can talk about it as if it's past tense. We could talk about it as if it's present tense. It's going to happen with such certainty. It is looking forward to the time that he will rule and reign. Uh, the same way that Daniel could describe exactly the same things about 580 years before uh, John is writing these things. And before that, David wrote about it in Psalm chapter 2, these same events taking place as if they're happening right now. That's what prophecy is all about. God is outside of our time. He can reveal things to people that will take place in the future, and they can write about it with such certainty that the, the tense of the verb, it, it really doesn't matter because it's a future thing, a future event that is going to happen. When everything is complete, Jesus Christ will rule and reign. This is, uh, can be said with such certainty that it is as if it is a completed event. And that is, that is what we're looking forward to. That's where we have this, remember, the break in the action. We look back at some things that will happen in the tribulation period. We can also look forward to some things in our uh, break in the action that will happen in the future. This is one of those events. At the end of the tribulation, Jesus Christ will rule and reign. Verse 18 is essentially the end times in one, in one verse. You want to send somebody to uh, a passage of Scripture that describes the end, well, you get the whole thing in Revelation eleven eighteen. 18. Uh, the nations were enraged. That's Psalm chapter 2 and verse 1. Your wrath came. It was unleashed 
on the earth. Psalm 2, 5, Psalm 1, 10, 5, Revelation 6 through 19, uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, 10. Uh, this is the, we are going to be delivered from this wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 1, 10, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, Revelation 3.10 talked about being delivered from the hour of testing that's coming upon the earth. Well, that's uh, your wrath coming. Revelation 11.18. And then after the wrath is poured out, dead people are going to be judged. It says right there. So we have nations getting upset at God, trying to rebel against him. God pouring out his wrath uh, yeah, God's going to win in the end. And then he's going to judge people. Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 33 through 38. Sometimes we refer to this as a passing under the rod. That's, this is a judgment for Jewish people. Uh, they are going to be resurrected, judged, and allowed into the kingdom if they can pass under the rod or excluded from the kingdom if they do not. Uh, one problem that people uh, make in interpreting the Bible in general is that they just lump all judgments that are described uh, like that, passing under the rod, the judgment seat of Christ, uh, the great white throne judgment, Revelation twenty eleven through 15 is on the screen there. They just lump all of those together as one judgment, but uh, that's that's not a good way to see that. There are a lot of differences between those judgments. Uh, Ezekiel 20, for example, clearly happens on the earth. It happens in the desert uh, outside of Israel. The Lord is going to meet the Jewish people in the wilderness, it says, and then they either go into the kingdom or they don't. Great white throne judgment, very clearly in heaven, Revelation chapter 20, those are obviously not the same. Uh, the judgment seat of Christ also very distinct from the great white throne judgment. Uh, the righteous are going to be rewarded, it talks about here in uh, Revelation eleven eighteen. After the dead are to be judged, the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, the small and the great. Uh, that's described there in Revelation eleven eighteen. We see that in Matthew 25, verse 33, the sheep and the goat judgment, uh, another distinct judgment from uh, Ezekiel chapter 20, uh, Revelation chapter 20. Well, why, why would you say that the sheep and the goat judgments different from Ezekiel chapter 20? Well, again, Ezekiel 20 in the wilderness, uh, Revelation or Matthew 25, Jesus is sitting on his throne. His throne is in Jerusalem. That's not the wilderness. Uh, sheep and goats are nations being gathered together. Not, not one nation, but the nations. They're divided between the good and the bad. And then, well, they're kind of uh, whether or not they trusted in Christ is, is revealed in how they treated the Jewish people. Jews are clearly excluded from that uh, judgment. They have to be because uh, your, your, what you believed is, is brought out in how you treated the Jewish people during the tribulation. A lot of information there. Uh, like we talked about, there's a blessing for understanding Revelation because you pretty much need to understand the Bible to understand what's being talked about. Another righteous being rewarded, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that's the judgment seat of Christ uh, that is described there. Believers entering into heaven, but they're judged first. And, and uh, in order to receive a reward, if their if their works hold up to the the intense scrutiny of the Lord, they will be rewarded. If not, they won't receive a reward, but they'll still uh, make it into heaven, is what is described there in First Corinthians chapter three. Second John 8, written by our same author, the Apostle John, as the book of Revelation, he says, watch yourselves 
that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Second John 8. He is the, and the Lord is standing at the door right now, ready to give you your reward. Uh, that's, I love that one of the hymns that we sang this morning, uh, Hold the Ford, I think is, the, is that the name of it? I think that's the name of it. It is a wonderful hymn to be faithful to the Lord until he comes again. He has something for you to do. He has something for me to do in this world, and we ought to be faithful to that. Hold the fort until he comes, and he is coming, and he's coming with his reward in his hand, as Second John points out. And furthermore, so not only are the nations going to be enraged, God is going to unleash his wrath on the world. He's going to judge the dead. He's going to reward the righteous, but he's also going to destroy those who destroy the earth as it is described there in the end of Revelation eleven, eighteen, We see that taking place in uh, Revelation 20 and verse 10, verse 15, uh, we'll get a glimpse of that again in Revelation 14, verses 14 through 20, talking of the destruction for those who will refuse to believe in the Lord, including the Antichrist, the false prophet, Satan himself is going to uh, go into eternal conscious. Uh, torment because of their rebellion against God. And it's a very unfortunate thing, but that same, uh, that same consequence is due to every person who is not going to uh, believe in Christ, trust in his sacrifice for your sins. It's something that, that people want to avoid. But that is, that it's very clear that that's what the Bible teaches in a number of places. And so therefore, it's not something that we should avoid or sugarcoat, obviously. If our, if our children or grandchildren are headed towards a precipice, well, do you would want to reach out and snatch them and keep them from, from enduring that consequence? The same is true for the Lord. And in his word, he, he doesn't uh, want us to be ignorant of our of uh, the consequences of our decision. So he warns us concerning this coming destruction so that we would trust in him. And then this uh, passage ends with a hailstorm. This is supposed to be like a, a cheerful thing that the Lord is going to reign. Unfortunately, the, the path to get there is not all that pleasant, which is very reminiscent of Revelation 10, where John ate the word, he's very happy. This is a great example of it. He's happy that I'm the Lord's messenger and I've got this great message, but wow, it's kind of it's bitter along the way. Revelation eleven nineteen. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. There is a temple of God in heaven. That's where he dwells. We get a, a description of that in some manner, at least in Revelation 21 and 22. We've seen a little bit of it already in Revelation. The temple that was built on the earth and the tabernacle is a copy of these things. It, it's just a, a mere shadow of the things that are in heaven. John sees a glimpse of it here in Revelation 11:19 the actual the real thing and this is the the very home of god that is being described revelation 21 1 through 4 one day that home of god is going to be uh, or we are going to be there we'll be together in the very home of god for eternity as believers that's always been god's desire to dwell with man but of course, he can't do that when we are uh, in sin or as we are sinful. He can't dwell with us. And so he has to make all things right before that 
can happen. And that's what the process of the tribulation is really all about. And notice we have this description of the, the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. So uh, people like to make a big deal out of this, but uh, again, I wouldn't get too wrapped up. Is is this the actual ark? Is this the same one that they, that the Israelites had? Because after all, uh, the the Old Testament doesn't describe in great detail uh, what happened to the ark uh, after Nebuchadnezzar came to to uh, destroy Jerusalem. There really isn't much mention of the uh, Ark of the Covenant anymore, uh, in spite of Indiana Jones being able to find it. Uh, I'm not sure that anybody really could find it. I'm not. I don't know what happened to it, and neither does anybody else. In spite of uh, what what you might hear, uh, it could be somewhere in the earth, but is it? I I don't really know. Perhaps it was melted down. Uh, who knows? We don't know what happened to it. Maybe uh, some Jewish people did hide it away before uh, Nebuchadnezzar came. We don't, we don't really know. This, in Revelation eleven nineteen, isn't describing the one that was in the temple. Again, the, the temple in heaven, God's dwelling place, is a real thing. And the one on the earth was just a mere copy of that. So uh, was is there an actual ark in heaven? Uh, I would kind of think so. I don't, I, I don't really think that the, the ark that the Jews had in Jerusalem was somehow spirited up to heaven. And then we're getting a glimpse of it here. Maybe it was. I could be I could be wrong on that. I don't think we need to start a new church over it. But one interesting thing, one point of it, the copy of the actual ark that is I think is in heaven had three basic uh, items in it. It had the law, it had manna, and it had Aaron's staff if you'll remember. And that is kind of reminiscent of the three tenses of salvation. Uh, not that the law saves us. Certainly the law doesn't save us, but it does reveal to us that we need to be saved. And it does reveal to us that we can't do it on our own, that we need Christ to, to die for us so that we can be justified so that the, the consequences of the law can be satisfied by Christ. He kept it for us. We trust in what he did. The manna, God provided literal food for the Israelites as they were wandering in the desert. He provided their daily needs for them. Everything that they needed for physical sustenance was contained in that manna. He does the same thing for us in sanctification. All of our daily requirements. Every spiritual blessing is given to us through Jesus Christ. Everything we need to be uh, faithful to him is provided to us in the Holy Spirit and in his word. And also Aaron's staff, it's pretty amazing. If you don't know what that's all about, you ought to go back and read it. They, uh, Aaron's staff, uh, our kids used to make staves, staffs, I don't know what it would what the plural of staff is, but they would make uh, those <laughs> for themselves. And a staff a staff is a dead piece of wood. It's a branch that's cut off and uh, shaped and whatever cured. It's not alive. Well, Aaron's became alive, kind of like us. There's no life in us. There's death in us. That's very evident among all of us. We are dying. The moment we're born, we're dying. God gives us life the same way that he gave life to Aaron's staff, reminiscent of the fact that one day we will live eternally forever in a perfect body created by God. So 
Uh, then there are these flashes of lightning, sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm, all reminiscent of the fact that there is impending judgment. So we've had a peek into the future to see with this seventh trumpet that at the end, Christ is going to rule and to reign forever, but we're not there yet. There's still a whole host of events that are going to take place, hence the thunder, earthquake, a hailstorm. There is impending judgment on the horizon before Christ will reign forever. One day he is going to, we're not there yet. In the meantime, he has provided everything for you and for me to be successful in the Christian life. And may we rely constantly upon Him. Let's go to Him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You for this Word. I thank You for our, our church and these people. And I just uh, pray that we would be faithful to Your Word, faithful to the things that we find in it. Uh, help us to have hearts that are willing to, to change and to be molded by You and by Your Word. We thank You for the Holy Spirit who indwells us as believers, and I just pray that we would walk each moment of the day trusting in you, trusting in your word, and relying upon the Holy Spirit as we uh, strive to be faithful to you. And we just pray for your protection and for your wisdom as we navigate this complex world that we are living in. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.